To begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Right. And uh, our hymn, did everyone get a new hymn in the month sheet? Sorry. I forgot to uh, ask that earlier. down to the catechism memory work and um, for the catechism memory work we're we're starting the section on the table of duties from the catechism and the table of duties is actually just a uh, literally a table if you will or a, a chart almost of bible passages and the bible passages correlate to uh different vocations that a Christian can have. So uh, Luther, in Luther's small catechism, in the table of duties, he goes through a list of vocations and matches up uh, Bible verses. Vocations are callings, places in life that people can be, and matches up Bible verses to help with that. So the first one is uh, to pastors, and then 
uh, will go to hearers of the word. So, so lay pastors and then lay people. And then uh, we get into stuff like fathers and mothers, employees and employers and stuff like that. So anyhow, um, the Bible memory work is the Bible work that matches up with that part of the catechism. So uh, what we'll just do is we'll just say um, we'll say all the bold together all at once. So we'll start out to bishops and then just go uh, straight through that and right into the Bible uh, memory work. All right. To bishops, pastors, and preachers, the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. 1 Timothy 3, 2-4. All right, let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And Luther's morning prayer. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger. And I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. All right, y'all can go off to, kids can go off to Sunday school. How are we doing that today? And then, um... Yeah, so if you turn back uh, uh, over to the hymn of the month, uh, this is a new hymn of the month. I I don't remember who the author of this hymn is. It might be Isaac Watts. Donna, is that right? Do you know who the author of this hymn is? Hey, Esther, go to Sunday school. Is it Isaac Watts? Okay, yeah, Isaac Watts. So uh, Isaac Watts was a 18th century Baptist. Um, and um, wrote a lot of hymns, uh, very you know, very famous hymns. You can get books of his hymns. Uh, he wrote so many. But uh, I do like. There's something different about. I mean, the Lutheran the Lutheran singing tradition is widely based around chorales, um, Lutheran chorales, which are uh, like Bach tunes. Um, Bach was a German, right? Um, and there, and then also just 16th century hymnody, you know, from around Luther's time. Although, of course, we also sing things uh, going back to to Bible times um, as well, uh, going going all the way back to the. Um, I mean, we chant psalms sometimes, so that's going back to the Old Testament. But we sing we sing stuff from from all ages of the church. Uh, Lutherans have traditionally really liked stuff from around the 16th to 18th century that was in German because that's kind of our tradition. But there are a number of 
really good hymns that were written in English and or and, and are still being written in English. But uh, Isaac Watts is one of these kind of really famous hymn writer, English hymn writers, uh, American hymn writers, if I'm not mistaken, that uh, wrote in the kind of American dialect English. So I, there's something that just strikes me as a little bit different uh, when you read or sing these kinds of hymns uh, that, that are, you know, kind of American hymns. And I, I mean, part of it's the tunes they're matched up with, I'm sure. But uh, the, the poetry is just, it's a different style, but it's good. Um, it's good. And I think it is, in some ways, it's more attuned to our ears because that's where we came from, right? We're Americans, and um, I think we have in, you know, the, the within a couple generations back in the Lutheran church, you can find, you can still find old Lutherans, you know, and uh, probably in a nursing home somewhere that older Lutherans that still remember singing things in German, but uh, those days are quickly fading, but I think everyone can kind of understand these hymns. So anyway, I just, I, I really like uh, some of these more traditional American hymns as well. Some some Lutherans get kind of upset at Amazing Grace for some reason or another. And I've never really understood that. I mean, I get like, it's not the most doctrinally profound hymn of all time, but... Uh, you know, it's still a pretty good hymn, and there's something just within our blood memory, if you will, as Americans, that those kind of hymns really, really touch us. But um, yeah, this is—I mean, this is a great hymn. This is just—it sounds just like the Psalms, right? Oh, that the Lord would guide my ways to keep His statutes still. So you can think about like Psalm 119, that we love the Lord's law, and uh, we want—we want to do it. Um, order my footsteps. By thy word, uh, I lo- that this is a, this is a very Lutheran line here. Keep my conscience clear, right? Uh, this is what Luther's whole thing was: was people deserve to have a clean conscience by the gospel. Um, and then there's all the different kind of imagery. I, I I like it. We got the imagery of like the uh, walking by the word. We got the imagery of the the straying sheep. We got the imagery of the road, the narrow way, right, versus the broad way. Uh, there's a lot. There's just a lot of good stuff here. So anyway, um, that's really all I have to say on that hymn for now. I might think of some more stuff later, but uh, yeah, great, simple little hymn, easy to memorize, right? So I I always encourage uh, people if they have a little bit of extra time. It does not take a lot to memorize songs, right? If you put the radio on in the car and you hear the same song about three or four times, you basically got it memorized, right? I mean, this, that's just how our minds tend to work. And uh, especially if you sing along with it and stuff. Well, the same thing is true for hymns. It doesn't have to be pop songs that we memorize. So, so this is a really easy one because it's really short. It's only two lines, two lines long and four stanzas. So eight lines total, yeah. Yeah, it's easier to remember the words, too. You know, like yeah. as, we, as children, we learn the ABC song. Well, then it's 
Yeah, anytime you put something to music, it's easier to memorize. Uh, anytime. And so uh, I'm surprising Donna right now because I haven't talked to her about this. But uh, one thing I want to do starting in the fall is I, at this conference I went to, I went to a session, the one in Wisconsin, I went to a session on singing the Psalms. And there's, so there's a traditional form of chanting Psalms in the Lutheran church um, which is admittedly kind of difficult if you've never done it before. Uh, it, I do it on good um, on Monday Thursday. I chant Psalm 22, if you remember that. Uh, but other than that, I really haven't. We really haven't done much of that here. But there's a couple of hymnals out there that are psalms set to common hymn tunes, and so I'd like to to start throwing in some of those sometime. Um, probably in the fall. I went to anyway. I went to a session that taught us uh, about that and showed us those hymnal resources, and it's really easy. Um, so we actually have some hymns like that already in the hymnal. So, like Psalm 23, "The King of Love, my Shepherd is," "The King of Love, my Shepherd is," something like that. Um, like that's that's just Psalm 23 set to a hymn tune, or um, "The Man is Ever Blessed." Uh, that's Psalm 1 set to a hymn tune. The man is ever blessed who shuns the sinner's ways. Um, that's So there's these hymn, psalm paraphrases set to hymn tunes. Anyway, we'll probably do that eventually, but I think that's really nice uh, to, to sing. I mean, the, traditionally Christians throughout the centuries have memorized the whole Psalter. Like, a lot of Christians have done this. This is uh, the first thing... Two things Augustine did when he became a Christian, if I have this correct, is memorize the Psalter, memorize all 150 Psalms, and memorize the Gospel of John. <laughs> he was like, well, I'm a Christian now. This is what I do. So um, that's the prayer book of the Bible. And so the more we can sing Psalms, memorize Psalms, it's good stuff. All right. Um, the Catechism. So like I said... We're in the table of duties now, and the catechism, uh, whenever you went, went through confirmation, if you've been through confirmation, you probably learned the phrase six chief parts that um, in Luther's small catechism, I'm looking at the table, the table of contents here, you got section one, which is Ten Commandment, Creed, Lord's Prayer, Holy Baptism, Confession, Sacrament of the Altar. Um, those are often called the six chief parts. Well, there's three more parts uh, to the catechism, the daily prayers, the table of duties, and Christian questions and their answers. And uh, that's only about the first 40 pages of this book, by the way, all of that, what Luther wrote so here we go yeah this is uh this is actually luther's small catechism by the way in case uh this book has ever looked intimidating to you this is just extra helpful stuff that's all this is extra helpful stuff this is like a teaching guide for the small catechism we call this the synodical explanation but um i depending on who i'm teaching i'll use it or i won't use it but the important part is this. This is what we say, Luther's small catechism. Um, 
And any, anyway, but that's beside the point. The point is, um, for some reason, this phrase six chief parts came around into existence. And I don't know where it came from, but nothing indicates to me uh, historically or in reading this that the sections on daily prayer on uh, the table of duties and Christian questions and their answers are any less important than the sections on uh, Ten Commandments, Creed, Lord's Prayer, Baptism, Confession, and Communion. Um, all of these are imp- actually really important. So daily prayers includes uh, we. the reason we're kind of skipping over it in our memory work on the catechism is because we have Luther's morning and evening prayer printed in at-home prayer every week. So it includes those prayers. It also includes mealtime prayers. Um, so the mealtime prayer, you've probably heard me say before, um, the mealtime prayer that Luther says, hey, if you're going to eat a meal and you want to say thanks, here's one way you can do it, uh, is from Psalm 145, the eyes of all look to you, O Lord, and you give them their food in the proper time. You open your hand and you satisfy the desires of every living thing. Lord God, Heavenly Father, bless us and these thy gifts which we receive from thy bountiful goodness. Uh, through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. And actually, traditionally, between those two paragraphs, so after you you open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing, and before, Lord God, Heavenly Father, uh, bless us and these thy gifts, uh, traditionally the Lord's Prayer is said. So it's actually kind of, uh, you, you put the Lord's Prayer in the middle, and um, that would be the blessing before a meal. And then he also gives a blessing after the meal, which no one does anymore. Um, but this used to be a thing that, that Christians did. So uh, th- does anyone remember ever returning thanks? Yeah. Yeah, you do? It's called, yeah, so it's called you, you give thanks for the meal and then you return thanks after the meal. Um, and this is, this is from Psalm 136. We used to do this and we don't, we needed to do this again. Um, anyway, this, I mean, this is very great stuff, but from Psalm 136 and 147, give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his love endures forever. He gives food to every creature. He provides food for the cattle and the young ravens when they call. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of a man. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. And then the Lord's prayer again. And then we thank you, Lord God, Heavenly Father, for all your benefits through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Um, yeah, I mean, I, we, we should do that at potlucks or something. I, that, that's a tradition that's just fallen out of practice. But um, bookending your, your food that you receive from God with prayer is a, is a beautiful thing. Yeah, Gary. Yeah, yeah, I mean, memory work in general is just used to be so much more common. Um, I had to memorize things as part of like my school curriculum, and I'm told that in public school today, there's less and less and less memory work. Like, it's just less less and less. Um, like, I had to memorize like Lincoln's whatever, Gettysburg, yeah. Get, yeah, Gettysburg Address, like at least like a part of it. Um, like, we had to memorize a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know what, you know, what it is, but we don't I I mean, attention spans are really bad nowadays. Uh there's I mean, anyway, we we don't need to go into all the problems of modern education, but um Anyhow, what was I saying? Yeah, memory memory works good. Uh and and memorizing these prayers, memorizing these uh psalms, this is all all good stuff. Oh, anyway, yeah, the so back to the catechism thing. So we're going through the table of duties now. Um, but the, all these sections, so the, the prayers, the table of duties, and Christian questions and their answers are all very important. So I already told you what table of duties is, um, which is matching up the different kinds of vocations that Christians have with Bible verses. And then the Christian questions and their answers is um, designed by, by Luther to prepare for for communion so it's a bunch of questions and answers it's it's excuse me starts off do you believe that you are a sinner yes i believe it i am a sinner how do you know this from the ten commandments which i have not kept are you sorry for your sins yes i'm sorry i've sinned against god so on and so forth um throughout and there's like 20 yeah there's 20 questions um but you can think of it like this so you get the six chief parts of the catechism, and then you get to daily prayers, and it's like, oh, that stuff I learned about in the Lord's Prayer, about what I'm supposed to pray for, I'm actually supposed to pray and do it, right? And then uh, with the table of duties, it's like, oh, all that stuff I learned about in the Ten Commandments, about how to love my neighbor, I'm actually supposed to, you know, do it <laughs> and go and love my neighbor in these ways. And then in... Uh, Christian questions and answers, uh, all that stuff I learned about in the sacrament of the altar and what it is, how it's the true Lord's body and blood, I'm actually supposed to, you know, go to church and receive it. <laughs> um, and yeah, we that the that last three parts of the catechism there, that's about living out the faith. It's about living out the Christian life, right? So you can learn all the doctrine, but we need to actually work on living this out. And so. Uh, today, right, um, he gives, uh, the one where we did today, he gives uh, 1 Timothy 3, which is the qualifications of being a pastor, and uh, addresses this to the pastors and says, look, you have qualifications to meet, right? The, that not, not just anyone can do this, and uh, you need to keep watch and make sure you're doing this, and, um, you know, this applies directly to me in this scenario, but... Um, it's good for everyone to know so that they can know what to look for in me and in other pastors, right? That uh, I, I can't be losing my temper all the time, right? Um, I can't have other wives other than Rebecca. Uh, she likes that one. That's a, you know, we agree. So, um, and, and so on and so forth. So, anyhow, uh, yeah, this is actually incumbent upon me to do. And uh, I've, I've mentioned before about, if, if you go back and watch the Lutheranism 101 stuff on pastors, we talk about this passage in depth, and one of the main points I make is that this is actually not impossible, right? I'm not going to do it perfectly, but it's not impossible to meet these qualifications. So, um, anyway. All right. That's all that stuff. Uh, any questions or comments on him or catechism? One thing we always say is in sports, we have problems. So 
Right. Right. Yeah. Jeez, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, well, that's a good point because um, if you notice these things about the, pa- the, the qualifications for pastors is that it's not just when they're at church, right? This is part of who they are as, as people. And you're uh, like, because I, I, can't, I can't stop being ordained. Like when I punch the clock at five or whatever, you know, we don't have a clock and I don't punch it, but... Um, metaphorically, uh, I don't just like stop being ordained all of a sudden, right? Um, and that, yeah, I have I have seen that in other guys before, and I don't want to talk ill of you know brother pastors, but where they kind of get off the clock and they are like completely different people than they are on Sunday morning, and uh, that's really not good um, because it is a witness to the office at all times and yeah I've uh, yeah anyway that's it it's interesting I have other things to say about that but we won't go too far in the weeds all right any other uh, questions comments on any of that all right so open up to Jonah Uh, we're going to be covering the prophet Jonah today we'll see if we can kind of get through the whole story what what time is it forgot my watch it's okay. We got 20 minutes. So Jonah's pretty short. It's uh by the way, it's between Obadiah and Micah. So you just find the the if you uh, flip through the back of the Old Testament, uh, the 12 minor prophets, and if you see Obadiah or Micah, it's between those. So. Um. All right. So um. The prophet Jonah, oh, I was going to also do this. For As far as uh, reference dates and times, where did I put that thing? Oh, here it is. Um, if you do have your Bible uh, history reference packet, it's okay if you don't. Um, I was just going to point out that the reason we're doing Jonah right now is because we're still in uh, the uh, northern kingdom Israel mindset. And... Uh, we covered Elijah and Elisha, and now we're covering some of these minor prophets in Israel, uh, the first one being Jonah. And Jonah uh, is in the uh, late part of the Israelite empire. Uh, he's, if you remember, Pekiah, who we talked about, um, and Menahem. He's around those, the time of those guys, so uh, the 750s or so. And I think we did reference one place where, jo- the, where Jonah is referenced as one of the prophets, like one of the sons of the prophets of Elisha or something like that. So um, I don't remember where that was, but I know we came across it in Kings at one point, probably Second Kings. All right. So that, that's just uh, to kind of put it, put it in your mind where he is. All right, so uh, we'll just kind of skim through the book. I'm using um, 
Again, I'm using this Bible history book, which is an abridged ESV Bible um, that gets kind of straight to the point so we can move through it quickly. Um, the Concordia Bible history. Just, so just if you're if I'm reading along and then you're like, oh, it skipped a verse or whatever, that's that's why. All right. So uh, the, the first thing that happens is the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and he tells him, go to the great city of Nineveh and speak boldly, letting them know, letting them know that I know how wicked they are. Okay. And this is really important that God's word, we're going to talk about this in the sermon too. God's word oftentimes is, is not just to declare his grace and mercy, but it's actually to declare God's wrath. Right. And I, I've been thinking about this more and more that the probably the sin of our age, um, especially within the church, is, and this is probably true over a lot of ages, but especially it seems now to me, is uh, lukewarmness. So in uh, what, what church is it that John writes to in Revelation that has the lukewarmness? that has lukewarmness. Does anyone remember? Is it Philadelphia? Laodicea, maybe? I think it might be Laodicea. It's Revelation 2 and 3. Is it Ephesus? Which one has lukewarmness? Yeah, Laodicea. So, uh, this is Revelation 3, uh, starting at verse 15. I know your deeds, that, they are not, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. All right, so that's where we get the term lukewarmness. Uh, but the idea is that the people aren't like... Uh, on fire for Jesus, but they're also not uh, outrightly wicked. Now, the people of Nineveh are outrightly wicked, so the people of Nineveh aren't really lukewarm in this sense, but it still applies in this way that for people to recognize that they are either hot or cold, they need God's word proclaimed to them. So uh, to be turned... So they are kind of lukewarm. The people of Nineveh, I think, are lukewarm in the sense that they don't really think they're doing anything wrong, right? They're, They're acting wickedly, they're living wickedly, but they're probably kind of just enjoying life, right? Uh, They're... They're just, um, you know, they're living apart from the Lord and uh, they're just enjoying their flesh. And what it takes for them to be turned totally cold, that is, uh, to, to be, you know, to turn them in anger toward the Lord, really, is God's word, right? And this is why God says, let them know that I know how wicked they are. And uh, in, in the Old Testament today, which, we're, which I'm preaching on, 
Uh, Jeremiah says that he gets the word from the Lord and, and the Lord says that my word is like a fire and a, and a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces. And this is, and, and he's talking in the context of proclaiming the wrath of the Lord because the, what the, the false prophets are doing is proclaiming uh, peace where there is no peace. And this is the job of a true prophet is to turn people who are kind of, we could say lukewarm in a sense, or to, or even wicked, to show them their sin, right? To make God's wrath known. And God's, this is, I, I'm talking about this in the sermon, but, uh, so it's just on my mind. But God's, God's wrath is so often ignored in our society, uh, obviously, but even in the church, and we have to proclaim God's wrath. I mean, if if God's wrath does not exist, then the gospel is meaningless, right? If God is not going to have wrath against sin, if he is not going to punish the evildoer on the last day, if he's not going to, this is Romans 2, if he's not going to uh, carry out his judgment upon sin, then nothing really matters, right? It's kind of like how what Paul t- says about the resurrection. Like if, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, like none of this matters. Well, same thing's true with God's wrath. And his wrath must be proclaimed. People must know that they are going to die for their sin. They must be warned. And um, this is how you get people to be hot or cold, is to, to, to proclaim his word to them. And, and specifically his, his, uh, his word of wrath, which is what Jonah's eventually going to proclaim. Um, that there's an analogy I've heard for this, which I think is pretty good, that uh, if you have an aircraft carrier sitting in the water, not going anywhere, and it's just sitting there kind of stagnant in its sin in this case, it's really hard to get it moving. Right? It's really hard to turn it around, you, it's, especially to turn it the other direction. It's hard to turn it around. However, if it's going the wrong direction, you can actually get it to turn around a lot easier. Right, And so what the Word does, what the Word of God's wrath does is it gets the thing moving. right? And then uh, you, can, you can turn it around from there. So uh, anyway, all right. Jonah got up and headed for Tarshish away from the Lord. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship going to Tarshish, and he paid his fare so he could travel with others going to Tarshish away from the Lord. Okay. Um, so a couple of concepts here that are just important, and this is kind of Sunday Sunday school uh, level Jonah stuff, but it's, it's good. Um, sin always leads to more sin. So, so sin is uh, a cycle, and you got to break the cycle uh, if you want the sin to stop. Because, uh, so he tries to run away from the Lord, and as we'll see throughout the story, that's going to cause him to lie. It's going to cause him uh, to be angry at the Lord. It's going to cause a lot of other problems down the line. Okay. Uh, the another concept is that hidden sin, uh, hidden sin always has 
a way of being uncovered eventually. Right? People are not as good at hiding sin as they think. And when you have hidden sins, which people tend to have, right? They have sins that they don't want other people to know about. They try and hide them, try and shove them away in a closet, um, try and, you know, commit the sins at night when no one's looking. When you have sins, uh, you they, they will be uncovered. And even if they're not uncovered in this life, which they probably will be, they're going to be uncovered on the last day, right? Uh, G- Jesus will make them known. And so this is why um, this is why I always promote private confession and absolution, because private confession and absolution, the reason confession and absolution is important, the reason Jesus mandates it, the reason he says to his disciples, if you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you do not, if you if if you don't, if you do not forgive them. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Um, the reason he institutes that confession and absolution is so that people can uncover their own sins and repent of them. Right. So this is Psalm 32. Um, I confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and He forgave the iniquity of my sin. Right. Uh, and I, oftentimes during private confession and absolution, I'll have the penitent look at Psalm 32 because it's a good, a good pen, a good psalm that shows that when you uncover your own sin, when you're faithful to repent, then God is ready to give His forgiveness. Right? If you try and cover up your own sin, if you try and keep it hidden away, uh, it's just going to cause more and more problems. All right. So he's trying to hide, of course, uh, Jonah is, and it's, it's not going to work. Then the Lord sent a violent storm to the sea. There was such a strong wind that it was likely that the ship would be broken apart. The sailors were so afraid that they cry, each one of them cried to his God. So notice there that the sailors are not, they're pagan, right? They're not Christian yet. They will be. They're not yet. Uh, they're crying out to their own gods. During all of this, Jonah, who had gone down, uh, into the hold and laden down was fast asleep. And this is a this is such a good image of our modern world. Like I, there's a lot of people I talk to who that they'll say one of the things that they like a lot of people who are depressed who go through depression. Um, one of the things that they struggle with is just getting out of bed. They just they just want to. I mean, because it's like a you can just ignore life, right? You can just lay in bed all day and and ignore life, and you don't want to. You don't want to get out and deal with life. You don't want to get out and deal with things, right? So it's how, how Jonah is. He's trying to, he's just trying to pretend like none of this is happening. Um, which, I mean, it sounds crazy when you tell, tell, tell about it with the Jonah story, like they're on a ship and the sea is going crazy and everything. But like that is actually very realistic of, I think, our modern society and how people act. Um, I mean, like the world's like falling apart outside and they're like, yeah, I'm just going to lay in bed and watch Netflix and pretend like it's not happening. Um, the ship's captain found him and said to him, how can you sleep? Get up and pray to your God. Maybe he will take care of us so that we don't perish. The sailors said to one another, come on, let's cast lots to find out who brought this evil upon us. So they cast lots and the lot chose Jonah. So I I mean, I kind of love the casting lot thing in, uh, in the Bible because... Uh, you know, we say 
in in the church that you know people shouldn't gamble and things like that and i i mean i totally agree with that um and that things aren't left up to chance so on and so forth but casting lots you got to realize um in the society that that the people of the bible lived in there there wasn't this idea of like chance and randomness kind of being a thing everything had a meaning because everyone believed in gods right everyone had the, the gods were controlling something right uh that there was such a thing as like fate and destiny and when christians cast lots in the bible which these these people aren't even christians yet but like uh the biggest instance is probably in acts one where they cast lots to choose who's going to take judas's place and um when christians cast lots in the bible that is the purpose of that is not like kind of flipping a coin uh just whoever gets it gets it it's random the purpose is to put it into god's sovereign hands right to say to confess that god is sovereign and that he is going to control the outcome of this situation and that obviously happens here right uh the sovereign god uh lets the lot fall on jonah and um so that they really believe you know this is this is who whose problem this is and it and it's true okay so they say who are you where they come uh yeah i and i wish we cast lots for things today that's the other thing i was gonna say we like maybe we uh we because we're so democratic in our you know voting structure with uh whenever lutherans came to america they adopted a lot of kind of democratic values um because we did like in, in germany in the 1700s lutherans didn't have voters meetings okay uh that that just wasn't a thing you had bishops and you had pastors and um it was just a little bit different which is fine but um you know sometimes i think that like we should cast lots for things instead of voting on them uh i don't trust people to vote on everything you know let's just let god decide um i don't think that would go over well but i think it'd be good (laughs) um no one else is laughing Everyone wants to vote on things. Um, what's up, Esther? All right. So they ask him, uh, "What? Where'd you come from? Why did you bring this disaster on us? Uh, who are you?" He says, "I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land." And uh, notice Jonah in that statement, he's recognizing that God brought this disaster right um he's the one who made the sea and the dry land obviously he's the one who's bringing this disaster upon us then the sailors became very afraid why have you done this they asked they knew that he had fled from the presence of the lord because he had told them what can we do so that you that the seas calm down they asked for the sea was still very violent take me up and throw me into the sea for this so the sea will calm for you I know that the violent storm you came on is because of me. Okay, so uh, he recognizes the only way out of this is sacrifice. And uh, this is a great uh, connection to Christ here, obviously, that the only way out of the disasters of sin is sacrifice, right? So someone has to be sacrificed to appease God's wrath. Um, Blood has to be shed. And 
So in spite of what they told him, the sailors uh, rode hard. They tried to bring the ship to shore. They, they were like, we're not going to just cast this guy out. Um, you notice they, they're becoming more and more moral as the time goes on. Um, when people get closer and closer to death, they want to do the right thing more. Um, they want to be reconciled with God. I mean, this is this is just simple human nature that uh, when people get close to death, they don't care about material things anymore. They care about spiritual things, um, which is pretty good evidence for God, in my opinion. But uh, anyhow, they're trying to bring the ship to shore, uh, but it's not working. They cried, we beg you, O Lord, and and they're, uh, they are now calling on the true Lord, right? They're calling on the name of the Lord, the true Lord. We beg you not to let us perish for taking this man's life. Don't hold his innocent blood against us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. Then they threw Jonah into the sea, and immediately the sea stopped raging. The men started to fear the Lord. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. All right. Okay, so they are converted now. Um, and and this is kind of a... This, this is what I love about the story of Jonah, is Jonah does everything... Practically, he does everything wrong, and yet God still uses him to convert a lot of people. Um, makes me feel better about if I make mistakes, you know, uh, that, that he does everything the wrong way, and, and yet people are converted through it. Uh, that's Genesis 50:22. What man meant for evil, God meant for good to bring about that many may be saved. The Lord prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. Okay, not a well. The Bible doesn't say well. And uh, this is a pet peeve of mine. We don't need to go and prove that God's word is correct with science. Okay? I don't care if there's science that shows that some species of some whale may be able to do this and that God, that Jonah could possibly live in there for three days and, and be spit out. I, I don't care. The Bible says a great fish swallowed Jonah and that God caused this to happen. God caused the sun to stand still in the sky when the Israelites were battling for Joshua. God can go outside of his create the way that creation normally works. He's the creator, okay? Also, along with that, the Bible often speaks of um, monsters and, and great fish, Leviathan, behemoth, and... Uh, and I don't think it's lying, okay? I Yes, whatever these things are are extinct now, or maybe they're somewhere in the ocean and we don't see them anymore. I don't know. But uh, scientists take dig up these bones of quote-unquote dinosaurs and come up with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of kinds of dinosaurs that used to roam the earth billions of years ago, and yet Christians have a hard time believing that there used to be Leviathan and Bohemoth? I don't get it. Um, I mean, I don't believe that there were that many kinds of dinosaurs. Um, I think that the bones that uh, the scientists dig up, 
that they put together like a puzzle and try try and say that they know exactly what it was because apparently they were around a billion years ago or something. Um, I don't, I just don't buy all that. Um, I do believe God's word that there were great sea creatures that God had control over. And so I actually, anyway, all of that is so I can show you this nice picture um, in Concordia Bible history that they did not draw a well. I was so happy because most pictures of Jonah, it's Jonah and the well. And that's not what the Bible says. It says a great monstrous fish. Uh, and anyway, so this nice, I don't know if you can see it very well, but uh, you can look at this later if you want. I don't know where this picture came from, but it kind of looks like a shark, well, piranha, great fish with a big mouth. I like it. It's, it's, uh, and it's scary too. It's not like a, it's not like a nice little, you know, like a kid's painting of Jonah in the well, you know, where it's like a little nice well. Uh, no, this is a great monstrous fish. Um, anyway, any questions on that? Uh, what time? I, I feel like we're out of time. Yeah, okay, it's 10 o'clock. Yeah, so anyway, that's um, we'll stop there. Uh, well, I guess we'll say this. The fish swallowed Jonah. All right, uh, got to that point. The fish swallowed Jonah, and uh, we'll talk about what happens after that uh, next week. But um, yeah, any any. Comments, questions, concerns on Jonah so far? It's one of my favorite stories. All right. Let's end with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent prophets to preach your word. We pray that our hearts would not be lukewarm or cold, but that you would shatter our hearts of stone and put in us hearts of flesh, that we may believe in you and call on the one true God. We pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.